2: Good afternoon. Welcome to Sogcast number 30. And Sogcast is stories about the secret war in Vietnam and other stories that spin off from that. And we want to thank Jocko Productions for making this possible in conjunction with Sog Chronicles. And during my time, we were in the secret war with Sog, and we signed disclosures saying we will not talk about it for 20 years. And so... About 15 years after the the war in Vietnam ended, I was at a newsstand, and on the front page of a magazine, there was a huge picture of the SOG emblem saying SOG, and there was a big story in the magazine. The magazine was Soldier of Fortune magazine. And that was the beginning of a long historic project of a magazine that went on to over time, print more than a dozen stories that are actual, factual, as opposed to a lot of the fiction and other media crap that came out after the Vietnam War. In addition to that, the other thing that attracted me to Soldier of Fortune magazine was the fact that it was written for Vietnam vets. It talked about the positive aspects of Vietnam vets at a time when there was many disparaging things and lack of accurate reporting on the courage of the Vietnam vets that fought in the war in Vietnam. Today, it is my honor and privilege to introduce the founder and the publisher of Soldier of Fortune magazine, Robert K. Brown. Robert, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you much. Indeed.
3: It's a pleasure to be here and babble with you.
2: <laughs> we will babble on, sir. And I'll never forget that. That day, the news rack I said, "This can't be out yet." And yet, there you were with your magazine. Jim Graves did his story, and it was the first uh, publication that talked about it. And then you went on. Of course, uh, years later, uh, you and I met, and then uh, I did some stories for it that were on Sog that uh, began in Soldier of Fortune, and then I used those editions for later books that I wrote on Sog. Thanks to you.
3: Well, one of the purposes, or the major purpose, uh, I guess, of Soldier Fortune magazine was to to portray the Vietnam veteran in, in a, a respectable manner and, and give credit where credit is due. You know, the people that shed blood over there, uh, their blood was just as red as uh, the people that shed blood in World War II, Korea, or World War One, but they never got the recognition that uh, even in those uh, conflicts. And uh, our mission was to, frankly, uh, publish Vietnam hero stories and then give, give credit where credit was due and overdue.
2: Indeed. And then over time, whenever there was shooting involved, where Americans might be involved or there were causes of great injustice, where mercenaries or whoever was going to fa- fight those who were being oppressed, Soldier of Fortune sent correspondence
3: there. Well, not, not only did we send them there, uh, Tilt, but uh, unfortunately, I had a number of, I had a number of reporters killed in action. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one was George Bacon, who was a former SOG operative, not well, a SOG. Me, I,
2: no, you're right. You're very right. It was SOG. SOG because, and
3: then he was with the CIA in uh, Laos.
2: Correct, and he was with me at fB One Fuba. That's where I met George Washington Bacon the third.
3: And then he was killed in uh, he was killed in Angola in 76 uh, by a Cuban, Cuban ambush. Cuban ambush, right. And then Micah Chanis was killed in uh, Nicaragua uh, in uh, 79. Uh, Lance Motley was killed in Burma in uh, 87. Uh, and, of course, Robert McKinsey was killed in Sierra Leone in uh, 95. So... Uh, We did a lot of interesting reporting, but uh, we obviously paid the price, too.
2: Indeed. And, you know, a part of that was um, you went there personally. And more often than not, if you were in Afghanistan, if there was was a big war going on in Afghanistan, you were there.
3: (laughs) Well, this is what was unique about Soldier Fortune magazine is, you know— we went and did. We did stuff that no other journalist, uh, journalistic enter- enterprise would do, and so we trained people. Uh, we actually got in situations where we pulled a couple of triggers, but the uh, it, we got involved in a lot of stuff that was supporting, for instance, the Contras. Uh, we collected uh, material that was sent. By our readership to our office, we totaled seven tons of equipment we sent down with the contras in the mid '80s. Uh, other publications didn't do anything like this, uh, nor would they. Nor would they have conventions like we had for our readers for 23 years.
2: Well, I well remember the September 1980 convention, which was historic. That was, that was your first one in
3: Vegas. Well, the first convention we had that was in uh, Columbia, Missouri, okay. in 1980.
2: Right, but didn't you have General Westmoreland?
3: No, no, we Jack had Jack Singlaw at that. That, one, that was in our third convention. That third, was in okay, in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, uh, at the banquet table, uh, we had General Westmoreland. We had uh, Aaron Banks.
2: Well, Colonel Bank, yes. Colonel Bank Father and spoke,
3: and also G. Gordon Liddy. So that was quite a, <laughs> quite a crew that we had. Uh, and, and, of course, we made a presentation to Fred Zabatowski, who was a Medal of Honor recipient that uh, worked with us in, in uh, Bangkok on our POWMIA efforts. And,
2: and just for our listeners, Fred Zabatowski earned the Medal of Honor on a recon team out of CCC and Kantum in 1968, a fellow Trenton, New Jersey resident.
3: Yeah, so it was. Uh, we've had some very interesting keynote speakers.
2: Absolutely, and you know the other thing. Getting back to Fred and that one mission, the one issue that you've always uh, reported on, and you you put a lot of money behind an effort to try to find POWs or MIAs from the Vietnam War. I mean, we both know and feel that. American prisoners were left behind, particularly from the secret War. Well, but we never had the concrete proof, but you put your money behind it, an investigation into it, and attempted, and you came very close.
3: Well, we th- we we did. Uh, we did some things that were quite unusual. We actually established a base camp, uh, a small. A-team camp, if you will, without the concertina wire or claymores, actually inside communists lay at Laos. Uh, we had a 120 armed men, tribesmen. Uh, we provided them with uh, ammo, with the food. Uh, and training. S- and training. And we had them on tap in case we actually found a situation where we needed to go in and and conduct a military operation to to free American POWs, uh, because we were misled by uh, the intel we were getting. Uh, that never occurred, but uh, uh, it was rather unique for a magazine to to establish a, a base camp inside, of, actually inside communist Laos.
2: Indeed, and that uh, to me, I always applauded that effort. You went forward with the best of intentions. And you and Fred Zabatowski, who was an experienced recon man and highly respected soldier, worked hard on that. And you all were a team. And at some point, you ran into folks who were less than—they had an integrity
3: problem. Well, yes, uh, to say the least. In fact, we did a major article that uh, you and I have both reread recently— that appeared in our uh, 1995 25th anniversary issue. Of it called the sting. It just happened to be have a copy of your
2: 25th anniversary <laughs> edition where that article is in. Yes, sir.
3: <laughs> so uh, it, uh, we ended up we ended up uh, working with a rogue CIA agent. By the name of Bill Young, who himself was a fascinating. I've run into a lot of strange people in my 40, 40 some years in this business. In fact, I was talking to Mitch Utterback the other day about the fact that I had met when I was in Madrid. I'd met and Otto Lieutenant
2: Sk- Colonel Mitch Utterback has appeared on a Sawcast interview with us.
3: Uh, I, I read I had an interview with Otto Squarzani. Really? Yeah. No. Yeah. Please for well, what he I was. was <laughs> Tell well, who what those. I was doing in Madrid <laughs> is I was working on a, a, a book, yeah. a manuscript that never got published with a, a former Life magazine correspondent that I'd done some freelance work for before I went to Vietnam. And uh, he was very well connected. He spoke full of Spanish, of course. And one day he just asked me, well, would you like an interview with Otto Skorzeny? No. And I said, well, why not? (laughs) Well, in the course of my planning, you see, I had planned to go to Africa Mm -hmm. after I finished my work in Madrid. So I had brought with me to Madrid an M1A rifle scoped with an ART telescope on it. Okay. And a Automag 44 Magnum. So uh, we... Met without a, I met with Otto Scorzeni and one thing turned to the other. And uh, we started talking about snipers, and I told him what oh I had God. with me. And I had it in bond. We, the, My Life magazine friend had arranged with customs to put the guns in bond because obviously I couldn't bring them in the spring. Sure. So I told him about, the, about this weapon system and the fact that we were getting kills at 800, 900 uh, yards in uh, Nam, and uh, Skorzeny wouldn't believe it. He said, "Well, and I was on the Eastern Front, our people only, st- our snipers only killed people at three hundred yards. I just don't believe you." Really? Yeah, my big. But mis-
2: could we just say who, so our viewing audience who don't know, or Otto Skorzeny? He was the top secret spec ops guy for the Third Reich.
3: Yes, he uh, rescued Miss Mussolini. Mussolini, yes, yeah, so from and, a hilltop
2: daring rescue in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> which there's a whole book on that alone.
3: One of my big mistakes was I failed to bring a camera with me, so I didn't get a get a photo with him. But you know, he was operating under some kind of a construction company, some no. kind of bullshit front. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> he was a piece of work. I'll tell you that. <laughs> And, of course, you know, he had this ragged duel, dueling score scar on his right temple. Right. And, uh, apparently, uh, it apparently was a thing to do back in Prussia uh, during that time frame that everybody in the elite military got ended up with a dueling score scar on their right temple. No kidding. <laughs> How did we get off
2: on that? Well, it's just a little sidebar that's fascinating, which is a, an indication of why you're here today. Yeah. because your life, your history, and your well-intended efforts to on oh, many different fronts. And there's always the sidebars of you, the character. And uh, this is before you went to Vietnam. And maybe talk a little bit, even about... <laughs> Early on when I heard about you, somebody told me, hey, he's the only Green Beret officer I know who got thrown out of Special Forces twice. I didn't believe it. And I came to you and said, Oh yeah, fuck, I got thrown out twice. <laughs> and
3: well, <then> you, <laughs> do you want to go into that? Well sir, why not? I mean, this is part well, of your flamboyant character, sir. <laughs> it all goes back the beginning.
2: The very beginning.
3: So I was hanging out with these soldiers of fortune in Miami. And one of them, Before you
2: joined the army or oh, you no, in no now. this
3: was about nineteen early sixties and sixty two. And I met a young man down there that uh, had been in the Special Forces Reserve, and he had gone to, on active duty, he had gone to uh, the 46th company in Thailand. Right. And when they did a security clearance on him after six months, they found out that he'd been working with some of the Cuban exile groups against Castro, and so they yanked his security clearance and brought him back after six months. <laughs> and I thought, oh shit, when they st- start looking at my security clearance or my background. And you see, I had a background in intelligence. I had done my first ter- tour in the Army as a counterintelligence officer. And I knew that it took six months to do a security clearance. So I said, well, what the fuck? Let them send me to Vietnam. Yeah. If they want to send me back after six months when they figure out all the nasty stuff I've been involved in, well, then (laughs) screw them. Yeah. (laughs) So that was was my plan. Okay. Uh, So uh, my plan was when I got called back to active duty after I volunteered to return to active duty— they sent me to Fort Bragg, and I assumed because of my background and publishing background, the fact that I had a master's degree, uh, they uh, assigned me to, as G2. And I felt uncomfortable about this with my background, and so I thought I'd best talk to the assistant chief of staff of G2 and tell him a little bit about my background that some people would consider somewhat controversial, to include that I had been prop- propositioned to assassinate Kennedy, uh, which I thought was, when I, it occurred, I thought it was kind of amusing, uh, but quite impractical, and that's not to say immoral. That so I, I told him about a couple of these things, and he said, well, don't worry, We'll uh, go on leave. We'll pull pull your security clearance. And when I came back off of leave, he said, uh, you're not going to be in G2 anymore. I said, saluted and uh, went down to personnel, went down to personnel, and uh, personnel said, you're not going to be in Special Forces anymore, and I saluted. But, you know, uh, (laughs) as bizarre as my career has been, I've always landed on my feet. So they sent me over to assist it uh G3 and he gave me two choices for the 6 months tour that I had to do before I went to NAM and I had the choice of being uh, running ROTC training for the summer or I could be the officer in charge of the advanced marksmanship unit well <laughs> throw me in the briar patch right That took me about a nanosecond. So I ended (laughs) up for the next six months doing nothing but shooting. I went on a tour, and I shot professionally, essentially, with with the team. So personnel called me and said, Brown, they screwed up. They didn't up-to-date your security clearance. But, you see, I kind of knew that I had them by the short hairs, because what are they going to do, kick me out of the Army because I've been doing an investigation on CIA fuck-ups in Miami? I don't think so. <laughs> right. So what was strange about it, though, when I talked to this colonel at OPPO, he said, well, Brown, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to go to Special Forces in Vietnam. Why you can't go to Special Forces in Vietnam? Well, I just want to go to Vietnam. And he said, well, do you want to go to language school? Do you want to go to ranger school? Now, a captain being asked what he wanted to do? Yeah. Uh, Very strange. You know, it's like uh, I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall at promotion board. How did I get ever promoted (laughs) to a major, much less (laughs) lieutenant (laughs) colonel? I have no idea with all this weird shit. Yes, sir. So uh, anyhow, I got sent to Vietnam with the uh, 1st Division
2: the big red one. And
3: strangely enough, I ended up very shortly in intelligence. I was a battalion S two, with no security clearance.
2: So what's the time frame of that? This, 65
3: No, no. This is uh, in. Uh, I got in country in uh, in July of sixty uh, nine. Okay. And so, uh, of course, the fact that I was able to. Get in special forces in the first place was kind of bizarre because to get in special forces or go to special forces officers' course, you had to be jump qualified. Well, how did you get jump qualified as reservist? Back in those days, the only way you could get qualified as reserve uh, qualified to attend jump school is if, in fact, you were assigned to a jump unit. Well, there were no airborne jump units because I think there was one in Texas. So when I was going to the advanced course, the in, in, infantry advanced course, which I shouldn't have been going to anyhow <laughs> because my branch was intelligence, uh, I became friends with the student company commander, uh, the, the uh, first sergeant, the com- and, you know, the, the NCOs have a mafia. Their connections are far more effective sometimes than people know. Particularly in those days, you had the, you had the Sergeant Major Mafia. Yeah, and so he, <laughs> with a, for a couple of bottles of Southern Comfort, he was able to get me airborne orders to go to airborne school, and I wasn't supposed to. I wasn't supposed to go there. But I did, and I graduated, so that meant I could apply for Special Forces officer course. Right. And so I got—that's how I became—that's <laughs> how, how I got in Special Forces.
2: But you didn't bother going through Special
3: Forces officer course. Well, you know, speaking of that, that was a great fun story because, you know, when <laughs> when we— uh, there were about 60 of us in the course. Back in those days— uh, the the officers course was pretty much a gentleman's course. So from the very beginning, the class kind of split in two between people that believed in doing precisely what the lessons plans were or what the regs were, and people said, well, we do whatever we need to get done. Think outside the box once in a while. So it almost ended up with some fistfights between the two (laughs) factions. (laughs) <laughs> so the final, uh, the final exercise we had was, uh, uh, you know, out in the woods for a couple of weeks. I think, and uh, the final, final exercise was that the main force, our class, were supposed to come down this river in rubber boats and blow a bridge. Well, my team which had split into two factions between people that follow regs and people said bullshit to that crap. Uh, we had the bridge under surveillance for reasons I do not recollect. We had no radio comm with the, uh, with the uh, major, our major unit. But we saw that the 82nd had their gunships pardon me, their gun jeeps, Position along the ra- the ro- the uh, river, so the whole thing, the final culmination of the exercise was uh, that the gun jeeps were going to shoot up the of course with blanks, right? And uh, everybody would get together and have beer and uh, chicken.
2: Sing Kumbaya.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> for reasons unknown, myself and this other. Uh, the captain who, Louis Lopez, who retired as a light colonel. We were demo men. And so uh, the, the leader of our particular team was one of the people that believed in just doing what the regulations were or what the lesson plan said. We said bullshit. We found out we'd developed new intelligence the, that the 82nd was going to ambush our people. And so we'll, we'll, we should do something. And he said, no, no, we just go along with the plan. Go along get ambushed. <laughs> so myself, I said uh, to Louis, I said, well, fuck this shit. Let's go blow the bridge ourselves. So we had the uh, prime cord and fuse lighters, and we stole a boat. Of course, that was against regulations. And paddles. Of course. And we paddled down to <laughs> got about 50 yards from the bridge, we surveyed the area, reconned it, and so we got back in the boat and went up to the bridge uh, supports and wrapped the pr- uh, cord around them, pulled the fuse lighters and paddled away, and blew the bridge, hypothetically, <laughs> yeah. an hour before it was supposed to happen. So that really pissed everybody off because, you know, this the chicken wasn't cooked yet. <laughs> but we did, you know, and the, the instructors wouldn't talk to us the rest of the course because we Screwed up the operation, but But one 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 of admitted we did what was right because we acted on new intelligence. So, so anyhow, you see, I just kind of stirred the pot where I went. Indeed, but uh,
2: so um, so back the tape a little further. So, at what point? Because now you're you're a youthful eighty-nine, and when did your interest in the military begin? And then, what, when at one point you say, "I'm going to enlist in Uncle Sam's army,"
3: well, back in those days, keep in mind, uh, I graduated from high school in 1950. Wow! And back in those days, just in the, time for the Korean War. If you're, you're a young male, you're going and you're going to get drafted, or you're going to enlist, one of the two. And I'd gone to uh, ROTC. I did a couple of years up at uh, Michigan State. I was quite immature at the time. Of course, some people argue the fact that I haven't changed. But <laughs> be, that, be that as it may, uh, I was in Air Force ROTC, and the situation had developed that uh, the dean and men and I had a disagreement, and I lost. <laughs> so I went out to the University of Colorado because uh, where the cowboys and Indians were. Sure, and. Uh, I was in the Air Force ROTC, and it suddenly occurred to me that I wasn't going to be able to fly because of my eyesight. Right. So uh, I decided to look around. I, went, I joined the Marine Corps Reserve because of the fancy uniforms. Good-looking uniforms. Oh, very. Oh, yeah. So I was there at <clears throat> 11 months, and then I started uh, looking around, and finally I got bamboozled by an Army recruiter who uh, sold me on a bill of goods of enlisting back in those days, you could choose your school or branch if you enlisted for three instead of being drafted for, for two. two, okay. So I enlisted for three and uh, went to the intelligence. I had visions of, this was before James Bond, of course. Of course. But I had visions of Cadillac convertibles and platinum blondes. Sure. Buxom, of course. Of course. And when I went out uh, to (laughs) Oliverd, we were scheduled, in other words, I was scheduled to be a special agent. (coughs) When we got out there, all the people in my company were college graduates. And they suddenly took about 40 of us and made us, put us in a course of uh, intelligent analysts which is nothing more than a fucking security, uh, a clerk with a security clearance, <laughs> which caused great dissidence. And there were seven of us. The, the, the regs were that if you flunked three tests, you were boarded and kicked out. I flunked four. <laughs> so I was the only one of seven. I went in and, and keep in mind very respectfully to a board of a captain, a lieutenant, a couple of NCOs and I respectfully uh, told them that, that, that uh, with all due respect, gentlemen, I had, uh, I had enlisted for being an agent, and and now I'm, uh, and they somehow decided to keep me in the course, but I'm still in the goddamn, going to be a clerk. Yeah. So out of desperation, I looked around. Well, what can I do? I don't want to be a fucking clerk. So I, I volunteered. I, 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 I went with OCS. There were three of us from the course that to, to tried to get an OCS, and I'm convinced the only reason I was accepted by OCS is when I did my verbal interview. The captain asked me, he said, well, uh, <clears throat> Private Brown, what would you do if you had a recalcitrant NCO? Well, I used to be an amateur boxer. Not very good. In fact, I got knocked out in one minute. <laughs> In 32 <laughs> seconds of the first round of the Golden Gloves, I fought him. No. But anyhow, I said, well, sir, I'd take him out behind the barracks and whop him. <laughs> and he chuckled and said, no, oh, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. Ha, ha, ha. I'm sure that's what got me appointed to OCS. <laughs> I get down to OCS. I said, holy this shit. This is Fort Benning, Georgia. Oh, yeah. What did I get myself into? And I'm about ready to... I mean, I quit because it was very laxadaisical at Fort Hollabird. You know, okay. We got passes. Sure. Back in those days, you had to have a pass to get off base. To get off base. Yes. Yeah. Oh wow. Especially for the weekends, Seven, seventy-two hour pass was uh, gold. You, yeah, it was gold. Yes, it was. <laughs> but the uh, the only thing that kept me in from kept me in OCS is I. By chance, looked at the training schedule, and I saw in the uh, fourth and fifth week, they had two weeks of training on the rifle range with the old M1 Grant. And I saw, my God, they have shooting scopes, and they have shooting jackets, and shooting gloves. I'll put up with this bullshit until I get through the shooting. Right. Well, I get through the shooting, I said, well, I'll stick around for another week and see if I can... (laughs) make the first six-week cut, and I did. I said, well, I'll stick around a little further, and I just kept doing that until <laughs> I graduated with two distinctions. Really? Yeah, I had the most demerits of anybody in the company. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the highest score on the machine gun range. No kidding. Yeah.
2: So what was the machine gun, a third caliber then? Well, Water I it a 19,
3: 1986. Whoa. So then I was... Uh, Sent back to Fort Holabird to go to a Special Agent School Officer's course. And of course, I completed that. And uh, again, what's the time frame here a little bit? Well, this was in 1956. Wow. So I went, to, I was scheduled, I was sent back to complete the course. And since I had worked in personnel, at Fort Halliburton, while I was waking an appointment to the OCS, I got to know the people there pretty good. And when I came back to Fort Halliburton, I knew these people. And for an intelligence enlisted man to become an officer in intelligence at Fort Benning was very unusual. So I had my choice of assignments. So I was going to go to airborne school and then the 11th Airborne Division in Germany. Right, But my father passed, and I decided for family obligations, I should stay near home. So for the remainder of my tour as a special agent, uh, which was cool because we had unmarked cars with radios and 38 specials and FBI credentials, or like FBI credentials, which were great for uh, impressing the ladies. Indeed. Indeed. uh, boring as shit because all we we're doing is <laughs> background investigations, right? <laughs> so uh, anyhow, I, that got out uh, in East let's see, 1957 I came back to the university where I set a new record master's degree. I t- took nine years to get my master's degree <laughs> which uh, I'm sure they finally approved it just to get me the hell out of the department. Right, and when the master's was in? Uh, history. Okay. Minor in political science. Right. So. Right up your alley. Yeah, more or less. Actually, uh, <laughs> what can I say?
2: <laughs> so, at some point, you get back to re-entering the army
3: or the army reserve. Well, I was in the reserve uh, on the pistol unit, uh, their marksmanship unit. And then I started going to these reserve schools because that's the only way I could make a decent salary. And I went to the advanced course simply because I was getting divorced. And I wasn't making any money. But boy, as a captain, I was making good money. Yes, indeed. So I kept going to these schools just be- sure. to survive. <laughs> <clears throat> so at some
2: point you find yourself in Vietnam, the first tour of duty.
3: Well, yes, yeah, so what happened was... Uh, I get over as f- with the first division, and I end up once again with no security clearance to the battalion two, which is a great job. Uh, I find we were in a, uh, a static position because after Tet, they had positioned American battalions on all the main avenues of approach into Saigon.
2: And this is Tet Offensive, nineteen sixty-eight, by the yes, NBA Vietcong.
3: Yes. And so uh, I, you know, basically an S-2 is responsible to keep the battalion commander advised on enemy terrain and weather. Well, there's not much to do because we just stayed in one location. And uh, we had a talk Tactical uh, operation Center, in a water plant. Uh, that was located between Saigon and uh, and, uh, Benoit Benoit. and uh, it was great because it was air conditioned it had been built by USAID money right USAID money to provide to it shows how screwed up the US government can be (laughs) sometimes because they spent millions of dollars in building this fucking plant to put good purified water into Saigon, but it never worked because the pipes were all (laughs) deteriorated. No. So, but the point is, it was air conditioning. In fact, it was kind of funny because after I'd been there a couple of months, the first division, I think, was stationed at uh, Lai K, which is a shithole. So this this one uh, staff officer comes down and interviews me. To come up to K like, hey, uh, to be an assistant uh, quartermaster on trains to brief the appropriate parties on on some quartermaster bullshit because I'd been a quartermaster before I became an S two for about a month. Right, and I'm thinking to myself, "You asshole! You want me to come from this fucking air conditioning place where I'm near Saigon up to this shithole?" I said, "No." I said, "Look." You don't want to give me this job because I tell you what, I will make such an embarrassment when <laughs> I first prove, you know, they'll kick me out. So I didn't have to do that. But what happened was, <clears throat> you see, I had uh, I had met a very prominent individual in uh, Colorado by the name of John Paul, Paul Van. Van. All right. And I had met him through uh, an individual that had written a book, which is, the author slips my mind. Uh, on He was a guerrilla commander in the Philippines. And because I was publishing books on guerrilla warfare with Panther Press,
2: This, is, Panther this Public, is while you're still in the Army or at you got out?
3: This was uh, after my first tour. First tour, okay.
2: <clears throat> because again, it's, that's a significant part of your history and just a little bit about what Panther Press was, if you don't mind, well, before we, publications. Was, publications. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Well, what happened there? My goodness,
2: you could just give us a quick. Then get back on your John Paul Van, uh, because uh, he was one
3: of the historic figures from the war. When I when I went down to Cuba, uh, I worked uh, the second time. I worked uh, as a stringer for the Associated Press.
2: This is before Castro came into power or after. No, in after, power? after.
3: Okay, I went down the first time with a buddy of mine from the army, and because of uh, we we couldn't get back to see Castro, we didn't understand the mañana concept oh, yeah. of Latin America, and we ran out of money, so we came back. But <clears throat> when I went down in 1959 after the revolution, why well, I, uh, I was doing some freelance work for the Associated Press. And they sent me out on a story to do a story on this guy by the name of General Alberto Bayo. In fact... Uh, I you just a, happened to have your first copy. Yeah, just happened to have a copy here, if we can see it. For, for a guerrilla. Uh, the reason they sent me out to interview this guy was because he, was, he had trained Castro... In Mexico for six months, Castro and his initial band. Uh, and he had been a loyalist colonel in the Spanish Civil War. Wow. So, uh, of course, when he came after Castro won, he came to Havana. And then he started making claims that he was going to invade Spain. And there had been some small bombs go off in uh, Madrid. So the AP sent me out to uh, to interview him, and as a result, I did a story, seven hundred and fifty words, first story I ever had published in AP. It went worldwide. No. Well, the ramifications of this I did not see until decades later, <clears throat> when I saw my CIA file. And a uh, acquaintance uh, who was an assassin assass- Kennedy assassination f- aficionado
2: right okay
3: He had got my CIA file amongst other documents and I made a deal with him where I traded a lifetime subscription of soldier of fortune for my CIA file. What a deal Yeah. <laughs> so my CIA files showed that when, after this article came out, the Spanish government complained to the American government about this, and the powers that be said, Well, you shouldn't have done this, but they never told me this, and they transferred me from intelligence to infantry. Wow. So I saw that this guy, Bio, was a potential. Subject for additional articles and I went out to see him and interviewed him And so I eventually got a copy of his book which he used to train Castro and I had it translated I couldn't find a publisher So I published it myself and that was the beginning of Panther publications Wow (laughs) So anyhow as a result of this I met this this chap uh, That wrote this book on guerrilla warfare in the Philippines he was an American officer that stayed uh, out. He did not allow himself to be captured by the Japanese. And he, in turn, introduced me to John Paul Van, who at that time was a civilian. Working for USAID? Yes. So uh, <clears throat> when I'm over in... Uh, when I'm over in... Uh, In uh, Vietnam with the 1st Division, I found out that John Paul Van was there. And I get in touch with him. Well, he was a civilian at the time, but the equivalent in the US government of a three star general.
2: In the civilian world, he had power.
3: Yeah, so this guy had big time clout. In fact, I have some photographs. I put on a, a weapons demonstration by a chap that was selling silencers to the US Army and I have pictures of John Paul Van attending that demo. (laughs) So I got I told Van how frustrated I was and I gave him a and so he wrote a letter to Colonel Aaron and got me an in country transfer from the first division into Special Forces. But see the people back in Washington didn't know that I was in Special Forces, and the people in Vietnam and Special Forces didn't know that I'd been kicked out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so <laughs> when, then I got in a lot of... Then I got in a hassle with my B-team commander, who was a real asshole. And... Uh, uh, because you see, I... When I went back in active duty, I knew I was not going to make it a career.
2: Okay. So you're of course, you're, you're, on a, you're an A-team captain in Vietnam now. Yeah. So you have an A-team. Right. And for our readers who may not know our viewers, a B-team is set up to supply A-teams around the country. And there is more of a supply element and… Administrative. Administrative. Yeah. And sometimes can be a pain in the fanny.
3: So this, this asshole of the B-team commander who's passed now, <laughs> George R. Murray… Uh, He was was known throughout the area as being an asshole. So he came to me and said he wanted me to take a dozen of my troops, my mountain yards, and have them dress in black pajamas with AKs and go up and intercept the NDA 5th Division main supply route with no air or artillery cover. Really? And I told him no. Well, he made the same— approach to my my team sergeant, who told him, no way, right. because there's no way he could bring us up on charges, because anybody would see that that was a ridiculous request. I mean, this guy had, you know, we made an insertion, airborne insertion, uh, which we thought was possibly a hot LZ, and so at that time, the procedure was, you know, you dismount First chopper go in and secure half the LZ, and then the other chopper come in and, and and secure the other half, and then you take off. Well, he made us wait there while he comes in to congratulate us on what a good uh, good insertion we make. Well, <clears throat> it deteriorated from there. <laughs> Got worse or worse. <laughs> we. Uh, we were running an op outside of our AO, our area of responsibility. And we ran, I sent out patrols and we came in with a young man uh, that they picked up in this deserted area in the rubber plantations. <clears throat> so we uh, sent him back in to to uh, B-team headquarters and they sent him back to us and he led us into a uh, infrastructure camp uh, and they heard us coming so they left. We had him in camp in a secure area and Colonel Murray and his counterpart a Major Long came into my camp and said uh, and, long, and uh, Murray said well, Captain Brown, how many people you killed this month? And I said, well, we haven't killed anybody. He says, well, you know, if, if your prisoner tries to escape and you kill him, you'll get a body count. And I was, I was went into shock. I mean, I, I didn't know what to say. And I said, finally, I said, well, let me, in, let me interrogate him uh, for a few uh, days because I was, had experience in doing that. When I was an intelligence officer with the 1st Division. So I had him a couple of days, and then I was told he tried to escape and he was shot. He had made the same proposal to my team sergeant, so it was a, I had a witness. So uh, I, I was not happy about this. Yeah, the morality and, of it. And I went to the uh, CIA. That I had a, in fact, I got a letter of accommodation from the CIA for my intelligence work uh, with the First Division. That's another story. But they didn't have any operatives in the area, and so I just went up the chain of command, and uh, they did an investigation on uh, Murray. So I've got I've got all the investigations, and. They decided finally that there was not enough to bring Article Thirty Two charges on, but uh, it was a very interesting, very interesting experience. But again,
2: you did what's right. I mean, the the whole morality of
3: just
2: to get a body count, and you have somebody you captured
3: precisely, precisely. My goodness. And I was convinced that uh, also that my counter, my counterpart was uh, VC sympathizer because what had happened he and I had butted heads because uh, he was bringing see I had my camp most camp A-teams had which a, camp
2: was this at that time
3: uh, most camps had a hamlet nearby right we were out the nearest friendlies were 22 clicks by air really it was Fort Apache. When we closed the gates at night, anything moved outside died. Uh, we hadn't, uh, so uh, I had had a conflict with my counterpart, my v- Vietnamese special forces captain, because he was charging the, the uh, mountain yards, my, my troops, right. an excessive amount of money. For food because they had their families so they, we had to have supplementary food come in sure so uh, I broke his rice bowl and uh, we had other conflicts he didn't want to go where there was any action when my Intel sergeant would say well we can most likely find s- some action here he wanted to go the opposite direction. Well, you know, this continues. You start getting a sense oh, yeah. that there's some hanky-pank going on here, right? <clears throat> so, in May 9th of 1969, well, it's just the beginning of the monsoon. And it was dark, dreary day, light mist. And the situation was that we had a battalion right across the river from us that was starting to vacate. We had an airstrip, of course, and we had C-130s bringing them, in, bringing them out. And we were taking a couple of casualties down there a day from mortars from the VC. And, uh, so on that particular day, midday, or maybe later in the afternoon, why this Captain Long is with his bunch of Slicky Boys uh, is down at the end of the airstrip, and uh, he radios me and he says, uh, "Captain Brown, come down, and bring and and see the crossed, uh, see rockets. They had rockets, 107s on cross stick, uh, uh, pointed right down the runway." So I go down there, and he said, <clears throat> uh, "I look at him, Captain Brown. The, please go up and." Uh, Get your camera and come back and take pictures. So, trying to be a good counterpart, I drove back up into the camp, and within thirty, within a minute, the first round landed with directly within the perimeter. So we had taken 107 rockets and, and 82 rockets, uh, more rounds right. in the in the perimeter. <clears throat> well, so happened that I had a patrol out. And by chance, they heard the incoming coming right over them. So we looked at our map and drew an azimuth from where we were to where they were. And then we plotted the maximum range on 80-deuce mortars, about 3,200 yards. And we plotted all the open areas and got the eight-digit coordinates. So... The problem was we had no connection directly with the two 105 howitzers that were in our camp that were manned by South Vietnamese artillerymen who were, they were firing, but they didn't know what the fuck they were firing at. Right. So we had these coordinates. So I asked for volunteers to run the coordinates over to the two 105 howitzers. I had no volunteers. (laughs) So I volunteered myself. So I ran him over and while this shit's coming in. And I gave him, now the Vietnamese artillerymen couldn't speak English, but they could read the coordinates and they figured out what I wanted. So when I started running back, I got hit with a 80-deuce. I crawled in, the, crawled in the dispensary and, and the, uh, my medic patched me up. And then I got uh, medevac that night. So next morning I woke up. I went into surgery at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. And about 7 o'clock I woke up. And I had two of my people in that had come into uh, the Trang to to, uh, trade AKs for cartons of steaks. So they came to me in the hospital. No, I'm wrong. It wasn't a train. I was in Benoit. It was... Benoit. Uh, yeah. Yes, sir. So I woke up, came out of the, the anesthesia, and I told them, I said, give me a uniform and boots. And they, I said, just give me the fucking uniform and boots. And so I got a baggy uniform and a boots on. I said, take me down to fucking c-team and so he did i went to the fucking you know and i had fucking sutures all over my face and i went in and told the fucking colonel and said, son of a bitch that tried to get me killed that he's a goddamn vc blah 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 well the colonel didn't he saw i was all fucked up yeah and uh, anyhow i made my point and i hit him take me back to the hospital and uh by that time the anesthesia had all worn off and <laughs> you were I were hurt I, for certain then and they uh, I started to cry because I they dropped me off at the wrong entrance I, I didn't know where it was I don't remember how I got back from uh, where I, I was actually crying because I uh, you know yeah and they took finally I got back they wanted to ship me out of Japan and I said no no I don't want to do that shit so I went to Cameron Bay and I supposed to be there a week and after two days i told the nurse you know best let me out now because if you don't i'm going to be very obnoxious and so they did (laughs) so so anyhow uh that was that and uh,
2: so when did your second this is your second tour when did that wrap up i'm sorry that was your
3: second tour duty well no no Uh, i was with the first division right and then with Special Forces, but that was just one tour.
2: Okay. And so so that all ends at what time? Then you come back to the States to do
3: what? Well, once again. <laughs> There's kicked, always a once again. Out. They found out that I wasn't supposed to be in Special Forces, so right. they kicked me out. So I ended up, once again, I ended up as a company commander of a basic training unit. Well, that's not like being a company commander of a line unit. Right. But shit, it beats the shit out of being a staff officer back at Fort Bragg, right? Oh yeah. And I loved the job because it was great working with these young men, and seeing how, uh, in many cases, you had young men that had never done a damn thing in their lives. They completed basic training, so it was it was interesting to watch the transformation of these kids. Sure. And I, and once again, it was a great job. So it, was, it seems I always seem to end up on my feet. Even uh, though I have been subjected to unusual circumstances.
2: <laughs> so, meanwhile, your journalistic career and other things are coming together. So by now, when are you beginning to think about Soldier of Fortune magazine? Does that, well, when, does that, when does that begin to foment in that creative well, mind? Well,
3: that, that didn't happen. Let's have a timeout. i got to take a whiz. Let's
2: take a timeout.
3: Check. Check.
2: Right around the corner. Okay.
1: Yes, yeah, sir. I'll uh, get all this shit out of the way.
2: It come through this way. <coughs> or that? Yeah, there of... there is
1: cordage there. Right. So if you do come through there, be careful. Or you can walk around and there's no cordage. It's you got two choices. Around. No, no yeah, cords. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. You okay there? <laughs> yep. <laughs> God damn!
2: Don't get old. Yes, That's indeed, bitch. Yeah. The golden years ain't. Right through there, sir. 59, 58
0: That's a time mark on that. Really? Where if, yes. You gotta get him to finish the story about when he was the guy that.
2: Jump, Paul, oh man.
0: No, no, 300 yards.
2: I oh, Otis Krasinski. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You gotta come come back and finish yeah. that part <laughs> thank you yeah. even I forgot <laughs> and you know what a sharp keen mind I've got it's sharp it's yeah. dull deadly dull I never knew see I never knew that Otto Skorzynski jeez have you ever read and, and his oh because Mussolini had been captured by the Allies. Uh-huh. And they put him on his hilltop. And so, I forget even where it was. And they figured that was the big attempt to break the Italian-German alliance. Uh-huh. Skrzyski goes in with his spec ops, German spec ops, on his mountaintop, a really heroic mission. Mm-hmm. He goes in with a fixed wing, Damn. lands, kills a bunch of people, gets Mussolini out, and they have a presentation with Hitler and Mussolini, which meant the war went on a lot longer. Damn. And he had other missions. There's, if you just Google Otto Skorzeny, uh huh, and there's some wonderful stories about some of the missions he pulled. Damn. Just crazy. That's wild. Oh yeah, it really is. And. Uh,
1: this is a different guy than the the guy who was tied to Castro, right? Correct. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that guy was from this. Spanish Civil War, right. which is right at the beginning of World War II, before World War II in right. Spain. Now you can think better. I'm sorry? And now you can think better. Yeah. Much more clear.
3: <laughs> so how's this going? It's, a, it's an hour already. Pardon? Yeah, I know, but I mean, are you satisfied?
2: Oh yeah, and then we, I had to come back to Otto Skorzynski, and just say, you know, before we go on to your Soldier of Fortune, could you come back to that story? We uh, finish the story about Otto, Otto Skorzynski. Well, there's not much. There's,
3: there's nothing to say more.
2: But you wrote the story in the book. I mean, you're, for your article, you got a story out of it.
3: I don't rem- I don't think we did. I don't think I did. But just to meet him, my God. Yeah, well, I met some other interesting people. Wen Kauki, really? Yeah, and uh, before Werner we Ron he did, Werner his... who the the Nazi uh, rocket scientist. Oh, right. Okay. Werner for, von for Sure. Brun. Yes. Yeah. Anyhow, so where do you want to go from here?
2: Um, we got the natural break, so I'm sorry. At the end, you can put your head. Oh yeah. Can you hear me now? Uh, roger that. (laughs) Um, Just when your time in in Vietnam and in the Army ends, there's a couple of transition years there, I assume, but but I'd like to really get into the magazine and the purpose behind it. And then how, because I'm going to start it off with, Soldier of Fortune magazine, over the years, even on my personal base, in the last three years, since I've been doing some podcasting with Jocko, I've had hundreds of people, all of whom served our country, and it started with Soldier of Fortune magazine. Then I'm going to pick this book up and read you that that
3: quote to you from him. Well, that's certainly the uh, probably the thing that uh, gives me most satisfaction uh, of all the things we did, was the, the the fact that. Soldier Fortune was responsible for influencing so many young men in joining the U.S. military, and and as you mentioned, even here I've uh, had—I don't know how many people come up to me and say that they joined the military because of reading Soldier Fortune magazine, and that gives me great pleasure.
2: Yeah, and it's not like. And are we we ready to roll again? (laughs) Yes, sir. We are
1: rolling.
3: Oh, we are rolling. Yeah. Okay. We, and so, we
1: stay rolling. I'm just marking the time.
3: Sure. Very good. As you might well imagine, I've never been idolized by the left wing.
2: Thank God. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. <them. laughs> That's one of your characteristics that we... But uh, um, so before we go into talking about how you began Soldier of Fortune magazine, I, through my last three years personally, Bob, I just got to tell you how... Um, I have met literally hundreds of veterans that have served, or men that are in the Army, SEALs, MARSOC, the Raiders, pararescue men, all of whom said one thing in common. Over When I was a kid, I read Soldier of Fortune magazine, and it influenced my thinking. And there, we have a classic example of one person that our country has come to know, and it's The American Sniper, and it's a story about Chris Kyle, and this is Chris's book, and in it, Chris signed his book for you, which I think epitomizes that moment and that whole expression. Soldier of Fortune, thank you for all your great articles. You actually piqued my interest to join the military. One of our heroes, one of our Navy SEAL heroes, and that's just one of thousands over the years. And I, I don't know, nobody comes back and says, here, Bob, thank you, or maybe you get that occasionally, but that's a critical point that, we don't hear about that from any, any military service recruited, but you were there because your stories showed the valor of our service members, whether they're in Afghanistan, Vietnam, you're going back to some World War II things, and any contemporary issue. And, of course, the POW, which, by the way, I want to mention, we were talking earlier about that one effort. In your first book, uh, well, that was first enough, but I Am a Soldier of Fortune. And then that is Chapter 12, where you're honest, where you tried to get the POWs, but yet things failed, but you reported it honestly. And that's to your credit. And I think your personal credibility on an issue, you don't lie. People may not like what you've got to say. But uh, that's fuck, why. Fuck them. Indeed. <laughs> and so through that, this work that you've amassed over the years, with 40-plus years of Soldier of Fortune magazine, how did this all begin in, in that creative, furtive, cantankerous mind of yours?
3: Well, well as I told you, mentioned to you, <clears throat> what I planned on going to Africa. And this is around in the mid-'70s? This is in 1974. 74, okay. So I went to uh, Rhodesia. I'd been in touch, and I don't know how this initially occurred, but I'd been in touch with an American that had gone to Rhodesia and joined the Rhodesian police. And so I'd done a little reading about the bush war and i decided that i always wanted to go to africa so i went to 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 rhodesia after i had uh, uh, completed my uh, work in uh,
0: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
3: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Madrid, but the reason I completed the work in Madrid was that on the 24th of April of 1974, there was a communist rebellion, a revolution, if you will, in Lisbon, Portugal. Incidentally, the 24th of April can be looked upon as the date where that was the beginning of the demise of white influence in southern Africa, because the communists took over in Lisbon, and that resulted in their eliminating their colonies in Angola and in Mozambique. <clears throat> now, what had happened when I was in Madrid, Micah Coca, the life reporter, was on contract with Newsweek as a stringer. And the communists were very clever. What they had done was offer all the foreign press in Lisbon a free round-trip ticket to Mozambique, which you could not get a visa for until that time. And so there was no press in Lisbon. As a result, the London office called Mike Korka and told him to get his ass to Lisbon to report and cover the revolution. And I went with him. Well, I got tired of watching people run around streets yelling and screaming, and so I went to Africa. And when I linked up with the, <clears throat> I linked up with this uh, chap Bob Caldwell that was with the uh, police, and I spent a couple, three weeks with him, and I met some of his friends, uh, uh, volunteers from other countries, including England. And some of them were talking about accepting a contract with the Sultan of Oman after they finished their tours of duty in Rhodesia. So I got the address because I was just curious. So I got back to the States. I wrote to Sultan. And I got a response from his defense minister, and it gave me, a, included, 40 pages of mimeograph type, which covered the insurgency, uh, the type of uh, work would be doing, uh, medical care, pay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I decided I didn't want to run around, the, run around and essentially offered me a commission. I decided I did not want to run around the desert. What I started doing was selling the information, and I ran little articles in Shotgun News. Be a mercenary in the Middle East. Send $5 for full information. Well, Newsweek picked up on that when they did an article on Vanel Corporation, which at that time had been Uh, training the Saudi Arabian National Guard. Right. So they ran this ad that I had been running in Shotgun News. And my God, I started getting inquiries from Bangladesh and the Netherlands and England, Australia, all over the world. And I got to thinking, and that's very dangerous. Very dangerous. (laughs) So one thing led to another, and I thought, in conjunction with that, I saw that the there was really no, at this time in 1974, there was really no adventure magazines, which was rather strange because there had been in the 50s, uh, 60s, you had True and Argosy. Right. You had a, a second uh, tier of adventure magazines like Blue Book and Saga. And then you had four or five or six uh, what I would call pulp adventure magazines where Lieutenant Joe Smith and his 20 Chinese concubines sink the Japanese fleet while stealing the gold in the Yangtze River. Crap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> but they'd all gone out of business. So uh, one thing, that, you know, a confluence of events influenced me to come up with this brochure that I put together promoting subscriptions to Soldier Fortune magazine. I remember that I had uh, attended a party at at, uh, a a trade show uh, that was put on by guns and ammo. And I was sitting down cross-legged on the wall next to Tom Ciantos, who was a vice president of Peterson Publications. And I was chatting with him about this brochure I put together, which is just four pages, which included the the cover of the first issue. And I asked him if he'd be so kind as to introduce me to Bob Peterson, uh, who was head of Peterson Publications, which was incredibly successful. Which he did, and Peterson was very nice. And he looked at it, (coughs) and he said, "Never fly." Well, of course, he was wrong, which just goes to show that.
2: So who printed? How did you get, who would, so you go through the process. You have, by now, you have a couple of writers. You're writing yourself. And how do you get it printed, first of all?
3: Well, what I did was I just started promoting the brochure to get subscriptions. Okay. Then the brochure grew? And I figured out to print four issues, uh, doing a quarterly. I would uh, need $32,000. And so I'm selling subscriptions at eight dollars a piece, and so with my poor math, I figured out that uh, <laughs> to cover four issues, I needed thirty-two thousand bucks, and I needed eight thousand subscribers. Yeah. In advance, I kept all the checks in a shoebox because if it was going to fail, I was going to send the checks back. Wow! But I got the eighty-eight hundreds, and I went to press, and that's what it started.
2: No kidding.
3: And who? Where did you get it printed? First issue, we printed in, in Boulder. Wow! I uh, had an office in my basement. Sure. And then uh, we pub after one or two issues, we had it printed a couple times up at uh, Wyoming, and then we got to the point that. We, those printed presses couldn't handle the volume and so we moved to Denver and then subsequently just moved up the road to larger and larger printed establishments
2: <clears throat> and then eventually as Soldier of Fortune Magazine grew you actually had a, an office in Boulder oh yes yes and yeah above a liquor store <laughs> <laughs> and and so at this point, your curiosity and your interest in issues. So you went to Africa, and then where else? Because when things popped up, you were there. And it was reflected in the magazines that if you weren't there, your reporters were, or freelance writers, somebody, like you said, you took some casualties along the way. And, uh, but the stories, uh, I mean, the front page, some of those famous front pages were your people everywhere. And of course, Afghanistan—the first Afghanistan, where the Russians invaded, like around what was that around Christmas time of seventy-nine, uh, December
3: of seventy-nine. Yeah. Well, that—that uh, <clears throat> that was our involvement in uh, in Afghanistan <clears throat> actually started and be traced back to October of that year, and for uh, I was in. Washington, D.C. attending an Association of U.S. Army uh, Convention. And I was having dinner at a a, uh, a Chinese restaurant with a chap by the name of Tom Nelson, who was a low-profile international arms dealer. And one thing led to another. And... uh, he was telling me about the fact that the word was an intelligence community that the Russians had a new assault rifle and a new round. Of course, nobody had seen it. So uh, this, once again, is October 79. So come December in 79, and the Russians invade Afghanistan. And the light bulb goes on. And I figure, well, if they're in <laughs> combat— they're going to lose some the small arms and ammo.
2: And this was the AK-74 that we were AK-74, talking about? AK-74, yes. Reports
3: on that, okay. So I sent my uh, reporter, Galen Gear, who had done two tours of Vietnam. Uh, incidentally, uh, Galen, uh, when he was in Vietnam, was a auto mechanic. And as he says... He was the only auto mechanic in Vietnam because everybody else was SEALs or Special Forces or LURPS or Marine Recon. Right. But anyhow, he went, <laughs> he went over and uh, procured a, a number of rounds of the AK-74, and then I had him meet my editor at the time, Bob Poos, uh, who was a former Marine who had marched out in Chosan, Former AP reporter. Wow! Uh, in Seoul, because I knew that uh, U.S. Customs would be so st- stupid not to realize what the significance of these rounds were, and would simply confiscate them and throw them out. Sure. So we managed to get some rounds back in, uh, uh, concealed in a typewriter. As a result, we took it to uh, something called the FSTC, Foreign Science and Technology Center. And of course, uh, the rest is history. Uh, we beat the CIA. And, uh, we <laughs> and took getting it? We took great pleasure in that because, uh, of course, we brought out a number of other uh, items of Russian equipment, uh, which uh, we got paid for. I mean, I. And, and Quite I, rightly. Yeah, I took a team over in in September because at FSTC they gave me a list of what they wanted to get. In other words, they were going to pay me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars if I could get a canister of of uh,
2: the yellow rain
3: of nerve gas.
2: The and that stuff that was reportedly we had the whole yellow rain or the yellow.
3: No, no, this wasn't anything to do with that. Okay. for nerve gas $125,000 for for, uh, uh, incapacitating gas $75,000 for a G 17 grenade launcher and they'd give me a dollar a round they wanted 10,000 more rounds of of AK ammo
2: and give you a dollar a round and by (laughs) the way this also is part of your book here which is on uh, Chapter 18, Afghanistan,
3: Round 1,
2: Trumping the CIA. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, of course, uh, the, the National Rifle Association did a big article uh, about the, uh, the round, uh, which gave us great pleasure. But uh, I took a team back. This was in March that I sent uh, my reporter in. And he was probably the first reporter that had gone in as far as he did go. So I took a team in September back to uh, get more equip- Russian equipment. And uh, we had been told by FSTC that we should not have any dealings with the State Department because the State Department and the Army We're butting heads over who got credit for bringing out, in conjunction with the AK 74 rounds, a uh, biological uh, uh, NBC nuclear biological chemical filter from a BMP 2 Russian uh, vehicle. Okay. Which my reporter and a British reporter had brought out and delivered to the consulate in Peshawar. So when we checked into Peshawar, or I'm sorry, Islamabad, uh, as I was instructed, I called the attache, military, U.S. military attache, and advised him of the fact we were there. Uh, Uh, Somebody, a lieutenant colonel came over from the embassy, a real asshole that uh, advised us that if we went into Afghanistan, we could not be assisted by the Afghanistan ambassador or the ambassador to Pakistan, and we should not go. And I said, well, that's all well and good, colonel. What's the security like? on the road from Peshawar to Islamabad. And he said, well, there's no problem. It's uh, completely clear. So we do our <laughs> thing up in uh, Peshawar, and yeah. uh, my one of my guys uh, brings out uh, 5,000 rounds from this little town called Dara, where they manufacture guns. It's in the northwest frontier, you can get whatever you want. Uh, you can get machine guns. You can get baz- uh, recoilless rifles, mortars, whatever. You want to buy some dope. Uh, how about some French pastries? Whatever. <laughs> so uh, the uh, myself and, and Doc Peters, I had a doctor with me. Uh, we were out looking at some refugee camp while my other two guys were up getting these ammo and bringing it back. And so we come back, and I these, the ammo is in backpacks on my bunk. They had gone home. Well, we got thinking, and yes, we had been advised uh, that we were not supposed to have any connection with the State Department. But we got, I got thinking. I said, well, we're on. We're supposed to be on the same team. And so that night we went over, and we called uh, the. Uh, Mr. Archard at the uh, consulate in Peshawar, and said, "We'd like to deliver something. Uh, would you accept uh, accept it?" And he said, "Well, certainly." So we take it there and drop it off. Next morning, I get a call from Archard and said, "Well, sorry, Mr. Brown, you're going to have to pick come back and pick up uh, what you left because uh, we cannot take take it." Well, what choice do we have? I was. Tempted to tell him to take the 5,000 rounds <laughs> and, and insert them in some body orifice. But anyhow, we, we went back and got the stuff, and we hired a taxi, uh, an old Mercedes. Uh, now, we have in our possession about 7 to 10 years of prison time in Pakistan. Okay. We have that in the trunk of the Mercedes. So we start driving down, and we about 10 miles out. We come to the first checkpoint, and I start to get in a white-hot rage because I'd been told there was no problem driving from Peshawar to Islamabad, five checkpoints. By the time I got to the embassy, I was going to kill <laughs> the <laughs> lieutenant colonel Uh, Who told me that, and there was going to be immense amounts of blood on the Persian rugs in the embassy. Indeed. Fortunately, for all concerned, he was not there. And I delivered the ammo to Colonel Mulder, who is the attache. And subsequently, I have a letter, which I think is in the book, which uh, is a thank you letter uh, for what we had done. So. uh, I got five thousand bucks for it, but uh, you know that didn't cover expenses. But uh,
2: yeah, but getting through the checkpoints too could yeah. have been dicey.
3: But you know, g- talking about the five thousand dollars, we did get fifteen thousand dollars from FSTC for the first AK seventy-four ammo we brought and the uh, NBC filter. Right. So I I've got a copy of the check someplace. It was some spooky shit, you know. Uh, <laughs> they were they were not really good operators uh, as far as being clandestine no
2: so and so as you go on at some point um, you
3: got involved
2: in El Salvador
3: well what happened yeah when we were wrapping up when we were involved in our uh, efforts in POW's efforts in uh, Thailand Uh, I had two of my reporters go down to Salvador to cover the war. And Bob Poos, who was a former Marine, and uh, another reporter. So they go down there and at some point in time, they meet two special forces troops that are assigned to the military group in Salvador. At that time, the military group was only allowed 55 people, which was a not, which was insufficient. So, being typical special forces, one of the guys was named Tony Paniagua, who was well-known in special forces uh, field. Uh, and they s- chatted, and they saw where SOF could provide them with instructors and assistance uh, to supplement what they were doing. Because I had access to Vietnam veterans with two or three tours, in uh, many cases, much more experienced than some of the kids that were members of, this, of a part of the seventh group from Panama. <coughs> so what? Uh, once I came back from Bangkok and got together with my guys, we decided we had initially thought we were going to transfer our, our thrust from POW MIAs to supporting the ethnic minorities in Burma. In fact, subsequently I had one of my people killed in Burma uh, that was working with the, uh, with the uh, Koreans. He was a West Point graduate, by the way, Lance Motley, airborne ranger qualified. Wow. But when we got back and started analyzing what, I mean, I had limited resources. Sure. Which is probably just as well, because if I had, had more resources, I could have caused all kinds of shit. <laughs> <coughs> but we decided, uh, being practical, that Salvador uh, would be best served our efforts would be best served there because the concern was that you, we saw that Nicaragua was under communist influence and we were concerned about expand, the communism expanding into Honduras, Salvador, etc. So we saw Salvador as a threat to, to security. And again, now this is a time frame. It's the 80s. Well, we're talking 1982. Right. So... Uh, we we started sending teams down. I took a uh, team, big team down in '82, and we actually uh, we actually had a uh, uh, we made uh, CBS. Uh, Charles Corot did a piece on us uh, and what we were doing in training down there. But we were working very closely with uh, with the Salvadorian uh, military. <clears throat> we provided them with instructors
2: and don't tell you where you met and worked with people
3: like Jack Singlob? well yes uh we certainly did uh, but primarily with the general Singlob was our uh, involvement with the contras and at one point in time 1985 when the government cut off money to the uh, and as a result CIA assistance to the contras in in Nicaragua, Uh, General Singalab came to me and asked me to recruit a team to take, to replace essentially the CIA influence. And so I did. I took a team down uh, and we uh, started doing this uh, training down there. uh, But the training was uh, terminated when we (coughs) had 450 rockets shot into the camp 450? In the, yes, 450. Uh, it's difficult to conduct training with rockets coming in.
2: Absolutely.
3: <laughs> yeah. So uh, we just, uh, that was the extent of it. But uh, yes, we did uh, do it with General Sinclop.
2: And because the, in the end, the El Salvador efforts over that period of time were
3: successful. Well, yes. Uh, unfortunately, the present government is uh, left-wing, mm-hmm. But uh, we we think we did make a contribution. You know, if if we hadn't been making a contribution till the Salvadorians wouldn't put up with us. I mean, uh, although to be brutally candid, I think they got kind of a kick out of the fact that we were there and not all of the mill group was exceptionally happy with us being there because of territorial imperative.
2: <clears throat> Indeed. and And I... I just happen to have in my hands here a little medallion that was handed to you in the back. It reads, Lieutenant Colonel Robert K. Brown, 93099, in recognition of your combat support services with units of the Armed Forces of El Salvador. 1980 to 1992, that's 12 years.
3: Well, the last few years, it was just pretty much one of our people going down, uh, our weapons expert, and, and helping them with their, with their small arms.
2: But, and again, a lot of those stories, I mean, I can remember reading stories in the Smell-A Times and the Washington Post that were bent very much against the Reagan administration and efforts to combat communism. In Central and South America, and yet you turn a soldier of fortune. You got the side of the story of those who are fighting communism, which is one of the things uh, that you've done from day one. Yeah. When there's communists, if they're trying to influence a country, you're there, either writing about it or writing and maybe getting involved a little bit. A couple of times, like you did in Afghanistan, wound up uh, <laughs> firing some uh, strong weapons at. Different I'm, targets in Afghanistan. I'm sorry, say again. When you're in Afghanistan, there's like three separate times you were firing, well it wasn't an RPG, but some kind of a shoulder. No, no,
3: okay. <laughs> I'm probably the only journalist that has gone in three times to Afghanistan and fired up the Russians three times. First was with a uh, 1936 British three-inch Stokes Brandt mortar. The second time and the third time was with BM-21 rocket launchers. And, of course, in my book, there's a photo of me actually loading a rocket into the rocket launcher.
2: And there there have been pictures on front of Soldier Fortune magazine or in stories inside of you there.
3: Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, uh, but, you know, we did a lot of other stuff. Uh, For instance, we had one of our... People, Larry Dring, who is a very famous uh, a troop uh, in Vietnam, you know, he went to Lebanon. And when he returned, he brought out a lot of uh, uh, ordinance that had never been seen before. In fact, he brought this shit to my office. I mean, we're talking illegal crap, right, like grenades. So I called... Uh, when he brought the, Larry brought this in, does that name strike a bell with you? No, it doesn't. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, anyhow, uh, I called this uh, FBI agent. The FBI agent, kind of, the FBI, kind of kept an eye on us, and so uh, this is in like uh, oh, sometime in the '80s, and so I called him. I said, uh, Russ. Uh, hypothetically, if somebody came into my office and have some items of Russian ordnance that had never been seen before, hypothetically, of course, would you take it off my hands and uh, get it to the right parties? And he said, yes, I said, well get your ass up here because I got a lot of this shit. <laughs> so one of the things we brought uh, that he brought out, was these grenade, instantaneous grenades that could be used for booby traps? In other words, you pull a pin on them, and they blew up. There was no four-second delay. Right. Okay. And of course, what he was doing also was training the phalange in Lebanon during the conflict, during mm-hmm. the, the the war over there. And then, of course, Motley, who was killed in Burma, he was working training the uh, training the. Uh, the uh, Koreans, and then I had uh, one of my people down, got shot down in Colombia, working with the Colombians. So, you know, we weren't just limited to uh, training in Salvador.
2: No, and on top of that, you had stories. I remember reading stories about Border Patrol agents from San Diego going TDY into into Colombia Could they were bilingual. There were Vietnam vets that were, had gone to border patrol and they were working with the anti-drug campaigns down there in the, gosh, like that would be maybe the middle, early 80s. Yeah, yeah. On top of everything else that was going on.
3: So once again, soldier fortune, uh, we did a, a lot of stuff we never got credit for, like uh, the article I was showing you about when during the situation in Africa, we sent 40 boxes of medical supplies to Rwanda uh,
2: and you again you put that you put some sort of a notice in the magazine yeah and then people responded as our country often does if there's a cause and you're just pre uh, appealing to people from the humanitarian side you're not saying give me guns and bullets so i can go to war it's like yeah. hey these people really need help yeah. and they did and there's another effort we had over eight to ten tons of relief
3: yeah the uh the uh, thing is that the, uh, we also did medcaps. in mean, Salvador, I brought down doctors.: So for our listeners, a medcap is right. What med, is it? A Medcap, in other words, uh, we ha- ho- hold a, a sick call. Sure, for the civilians. Uh, and so we uh, God knows how many people we treated. Uh, in fact, one of them, one of the SF medics, John Doc uh, Paget. There we go. It was on a lot of these med caps, and then we sent missions into Laos, working with the Hmong, uh medical missions. So this is stuff we never got credit for, Indeed. but uh, at least I have the satisfaction of knowing that uh, that uh, that we we did have an uh, impact. But you know, getting back to Laos, what was what was interesting about. Uh, Following up on the POW thing, yeah, when <clears throat> when we de- came to the conclusion we had to shut the POW operation down, uh, we were shifting into actually supporting the resistance movement in Laos, and we were bamboozled base- basically by this rogue CIA agent. Uh, giving us all these fantasy, we subsequently found out, phony reports about how the resistance was recruiting more people and having more effect, and we were going to take over this whole province in Laos uh, in conjunction with our POWMIA efforts. And it was all bullshit. Uh, it was just him writing phony, uh, right. phony uh, summary opsums uh, reports And we finally uh, realized that uh, he was conning us when uh, he submitted an expense report and he was uh, claiming a certain amount for uh, a a safe house, which, in fact, my business manager found out was his home. No. Yeah. So that was was the end. But he was a fascinating... You know, I've, I've met a lot of strange people, in the course of my association with the magazine. And certainly he was one of the, uh, one of the most unique. Uh, he, uh, he was the son of missionaries, born in Burma, and he spoke all the, uh, not all, but four or five different tribal languages. So basically he was a Caucasian by genes, but mentally he was a tribesperson. Wow, and he uh, he was very shrewd. He got some. He just couldn't operate in a situation that the CIA required him to be.
2: He did, even the CIA has constraints. Yeah, and he, some guidelines precisely. they, they yeah. have to yeah. to yeah. work inside
3: of. And so, uh, you know, he. Uh, I remember one time when I was getting suspicious of his motives. Well, he would always come up with some gimmick. And so one time he came up with the idea. He said, well, I'll tell you what, Brown, uh, why don't you give me the money to buy six uh, M-16s, and what we'll do is uh, some Sunday afternoon we'll go and hit this drug factory with some Wah tribesmen. I said, well, that sounds like a pretty good way to spend a Sunday afternoon and uh, hit this uh, drug facility. Well, of course, I gave them the money for the guns and never saw the money, never saw the guns. Or the drugs. Yeah, or the drugs. To to be
2: blown up. But, you know, also, because of your activism, your visibility through the magazine, and even at times creating controversy outside of the magazine that made you a national focus of attention, there were times that people had tried to kill you. You were on people's hit list like Trujillo.
3: Well... Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's not miss our words on this well, one. Well, basically, the, the story there is that uh, this is a story that was g- related to me by uh, a soldier of fortune. That was the American that was the uh, number two man in the dictator Trujillo's intelligence uh, operation. <clears throat> His name was Robert Johnson. Uh, a superb author, by the way, he wrote some uh, articles for Soldier Fortune, one of our best writers. So we're having drinks one night, and he tells me the story basically, which of course is account- recounted in the, mag- in the book, about how, that I, uh, that, uh, how he had experienced a situation with the dictator himself, Rafael Trujillo in which uh, he had told the, Rafael Trujillo that this article that he had come across in Guns Magazine, written by myself, <laughs> which described how Castro was creating a arms factory in Havana uh, that was being put together by a former Spanish loyalist, Regino Camacho, And Trujillo decided that he didn't want this to occur. So he had a hit team that said that he authorized to kill uh, Camacho. At the same time, uh, Trujillo wanted me killed. Uh, The hit team, which was composed of a very strange, bizarre group of people, according to this uh, Bob Johnson, uh, they ended up assassinating uh, Camacho, and the only reason they didn't get me is because I ran out of money and I had left, left uh, Cuba, <laughs> which uh, gets one's attention. Oh, uh, absolutely, you know. yeah. But you know, one of the one of the uh, pub one of the one of the stories that uh, I still haven't solved, a mystery, was regarding. Uh, Charlie Beckwith. Indeed. Colonel, Colonel Beckwith. What happened there was in, in the summer of 19. 19- and
2: Charlie Beckwith was a Vietnam vet and officer of Special Forces, and he was the, one of the founding uh, figures putting together what became Delta Force. Well,
3: he was commanding officer of Desert One. And Desert One, yes. So uh, in the summer of 1980, we started developing an intelligence picture. Which led us to believe that there was going to be a desert two. We started getting information from we had two people that called us separately who were telling us there was going to be a desert two, and the fact that it was going to be a disaster that they were going to take a whole ranger battalion in <clears throat> uh, we started getting more different more information and I sent a uh, one of my people who was in the Special Forces Reserve down to Fort Bragg, he put his uniform on and just went around to the NCO clubs and and the coffee shops and listened. And everybody was talking about Desert Two. <laughs> so when we had the first convention in Columbia, Missouri in September of 1980, we had a a late-night meeting that went on for several hours in which we discussed what should we do with this information that we developed that gave every indication there was going to be a sec- separate a second attempt to rescue the hostages of Iran. Uh, I had a, a retired, uh, uh, well, disabled, if you will, a uh, vet, Tom Cunningham, who was a SOG operator. I had Dana Dreskowski, who had been a B-52, and an F-4 pilot, uh, Air Force Academy graduate. I had Al Marr, former Special Forces, who was a well-known knife maker, and, and a number of other people who we deb- debated for hours. And, and also Jimmy Dean, who was a uh, well-known and yeah, from the special forces side of history, Vietnam vet. Right. So we that, yes, uh, debated whether or not we should go public or not, and we were concerned because the uh, le- upcoming election with Carter and Reagan. And we again, this sept-
2: September 1980. The election right. was
3: two months away. Yeah, yeah. So that's
2: why it's so strong in your mind at that right. time. Right.
3: And at that time. Uh, it was very close. Of course, Reagan won by a considerable amount, but at that time the poll showed it was a close race. And we were concerned because if there's a two, if it was successful, that would be a couple of points for, uh, for, a peanut farmer. For, for, Car- for Carter. Or even if it was unsuccessful, he might get a sympathy vote. On the other side of that coin was, how this might affect Americans involved in the operation. We had seventy media, separate media, that were attending the convention, and had we had, uh, had we had a um, a formal press, press conference, pre- on that. press conference, yeah, it would have made national news. Sure, but we decided finally not to do that because it, it's just the concern about American troops. However, what we did do is gave all this information to Jimmy Dean, who took it back to—not not Jimmy Dean. What was his first name? Was it Jimmy Dean? That's Jimmy Dean, Yeah, yes, or, sir. okay. Yeah, you're good. Took it back to uh, Charlie Beckwith.
2: Back at Fort Bragg. Yeah. Yes, sir.
3: A week or so later, I got a call from this chap that I had sent down to—,
2: to Hand me. off the information
3: bit down to Fort Bragg. And he told me that Charlie Beckwith, Colonel Beckwith was going to call me. And I I blew him off because I didn't know Charlie Beckwith from Adams L. Fox. <coughs> and sure enough, an hour or so later I get a call from Charlie. This is Colonel Beckwith. He's a very gruff man. Oh yeah. And he said, and I'm quoting you. He said, "Mr. Brown, you're a great patriot." If anything I can do for you, just call me. Well, I'm kind of in semi-shock. And I'm slow, but I'm not stupid. And I said, well, Colonel, I'd come out and t- like to talk to you sometime. Or you just come out any time you want. So I waited an appropriate amount of time, a couple of weeks, and I called him and uh, arranged to get together. And I flew out. He picked me up at his, dressed in his uniform, took, took me uh, home to his house, fed me a steak and scotch, We bullshitted at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he didn't tell me shit. (laughs) (laughs) And I always look back now and say, well, I should have been more aggressive and pushed him to explain why the fuck he called me and told me that. And I just never got around to doing it. And people that I planned on talking to that knew something about the situation also have passed. So... But, you know, people can say this is a bullshit story. And I say, well, that may be true, but it's very interesting to note that during one of my legal trials, the Charlie Beckwith, Colonel Beckwith, sure. came down and served as a character witness for me. And when That's the, saying something. When the judge asked Colonel Beckwith, well, Colonel Beckwith, why are you here? And Colonel Beckwith replied, because Bob Brown's a friend of mine. <laughs> well, what can I say? What can I say? And yeah. then he went on to testify. Well, that. I said, it's one of these mysteries me. sure. that's never been solved.
2: Yeah. And then you also had some unique experiences like having lunch with a KGB agent.
3: Well, that was it, yes. <laughs> you know, I've had some very talented people work with me, and uh, it's certainly been a pleasure with some of them. Uh, one of them being... Uh, Jim Coyne. Jim was a uh, two-tour door gunner and chopper and nam. And uh, very, very talented writer. Good writer. So we were members, of course, of the Bangkok Press Club, International Press Club. We are at a uh, meeting of the Press Club and somebody points out this guy uh, across the way who was the Russian uh, political officer in the Russian embassy in Bangkok whose name amongst the community, the diplomatic community, was Jaws. (laughs) And allegedly, he was responsible for wet work. So uh, the person introduced uh, coined to uh, this Russian. And so the Russian said, you know, uh, well, we need to get together for lunch sometime. Uh, so we eventually did. And he knew what we were doing because he knew that we went to Afghanistan. We hadn't told anybody. This was in May of 82. So it was a very interesting conversation. And of course, he was... we we went to this restaurant in the middle of the day which we choose chose and we went there doing this appropriate clandestine technique we went an hour ahead of time to see who else was going to be there right and he showed up and shortly after there was a young ty came in that was obviously his tail and it was a interesting conversation that we had and uh, we thought it was so interesting we printed an article about it in soldier of fortune and several days after the article hit the newsstand he was relieved of his position and sent back to moscow <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: anything to help out a kgb agent indeed yeah, yeah. so um we we've, we've been going almost 2 hours yeah and um uh, we've covered a lot of territory but Looking back, as are I mean, first of all, we've only covered a few of the stories that are in "I Am Soldier of Fortune," and I encourage anybody who's a fan of Soldier of Fortune or you over the years to go out and buy it. It's been out a while, but it's still available, and it's, it's a good read.
3: Well, if they want an autograph copy, indeed. Now, get out your pens and pencils, people. <laughs> if you want an autograph copy, which is no, no. Extra cost. Indeed. Uh, the book costs $30, plus shipping, which is another $7. If you want an autograph copy, then contact me at my email address, which is, get your pencils ready, R-K-B-L-T-C-O-L at AOL.com. And you all know what AOL do- Stands for. No. Almost online.
2: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so um, is there any other things you want to reflect on before? Because I wanted to close out our session here with the end of your book where you talk on a very like personal basis about why and what you've done over the years. Well, yes.
3: I hate to have thought that I've dropped this. Piece of iron, indeed, all the way over here, without talking about it, and especially designed, right? Well, it's customized. Customized, yes. This is a 1911-45 uh, for the idiots out there that don't know what it is, and it's uh, it's a pistol that I got down a gun site. It's called it a GSP.
2: Which is one of the leading training sites in the country in but Arizona.
3: The uh, but the. Uh, particular model is called a slim light and what is unique about this is that it has certain modifications which reduces the circumference around the handle which is good for my small hand because when you draw quickly you need to be able to have a good grip so what they have done here is pinned the safety and they have have milled the frame down to the point that uh, uh, it's still structurally sound. They've shaved the grips and put in a short trigger, and that has uh, reduced the circumference seven-eighths of an inch. So this is a sweet shooting puppy.
2: Indeed, a 1911 stylized just for you, sir. And uh, so, and again, in the conclusion in your book, it was the headline, again, it reflects your spirit. As long as tyrants and liberals exist, and I am still kicking. <laughs> I love it. And you talked about the soldier fortune, the Cold War, different uh, things that you were involved with. But then you said, <clears throat> I'm proud of the fact that the emergence of Soldier of Fortune offered Vietnam vets the recognition they deserved, a home in a sense, a meeting place for their souls. We valued their sacrifices, and Vietnam continued to be featured in SOS pages. We maintained from the beginning that the blood of our warriors shed in Nam was just as red as that shed in World War I, World War II, or Korea. Now we also cover the sacrifices of those who have gallantly fought the long and seemingly endless war on terror. A difference is that with the onset of the age of cyber intel, many of our ro- reports are from our troops exactly while the action is happening. Yeah. And that's just part of the what you've done over these years. And, uh, uh, Again, any last thought before we uh, finally close out for tonight?
3: Well, listen, I thank you for the opportunity to to send you a lot of bullshit.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because you always had the personas in the magazine, and then you had the way you've been attacked publicly often, but you still go forward trying to get the truth the best way you can. Even if you have an effort that failed, you tell it honestly. You don't try to pansy around it or covered up, or not talk about it. Yeah. You come back and say, hey, we tried, we did this, it cost me $300,000, a well, soldier of fortune money.
3: Well, I would say that uh, in today's dollars, with inflation, it would be probably close, well over a million dollars. Indeed. In today's dollars. Yes, sir. Yeah.
2: Well, in that case, we'll wrap it up at this point. And uh, as always, we thank Jocko Willink Productions for making this production possible tonight. And we always thank our veterans who are serving today and for protecting our country. We, we thank the first responders and the border patrol, particularly with the issues on our borders today. And as always, we thank the Americans, American heroes like Robert K. Brown, who have fought for our country and after his time in service, continue to honor veterans, the causes, to bring the truth of the war to the reading public. And last but not least, we always salute those who were not able to return home. And with that, we say thank you again, Bob, for joining us tonight. Be sure to get his book. There's many more great stories in there. And uh, also we have some of my personal books, which are Across the Fence, where we talked about a couple of stories that were there. Briefly, Tom Cunningham, who served with you, served with me at uh, FOB1. Short while time, but he was there.
3: He did it. My pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to speak. Airborne. All the way. God bless America.
2: Here, here. Well, there's one of our living, cantankerous heroes in a different kind of way, huh?
1: What an absolute pleasure.
2: (laughs) What a guy. (laughs) Robert K. Brown. Yes. And in the early days, when he's talking about drinking a little bit, things were wild at some of those Soldier of Fortune magazine uh, annual... Confabs in Vegas.
1: Yeah. I was I was thumbing through the book for a second and I was seeing some some great photos, you know, oh, yeah. of of Robert K. Brown just back in the day, no shirt, medium machine gun, you know, just very very yeah. awesome stuff in
2: that book. And the one I always liked was like with the one in the nine, you got his bray on, no shirt. Yeah. And f- camouflage fatigue and the monkey on his shoulder. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a what a guy. And you know, those uh those stories about, you know, his his not only, you know, just um, literary contributions through Soldier of Fortune, um, but, you know, actually having an, an impact in some of these AOs where, oh, yeah. you know, folks needed help and and we were, you know, America proper was pulling out a little bit and sure. uh, Soldier of Fortune was going into it for the assist.
2: Indeed. And that was the humanitarian... Side would not get played up. Mm. If he if he said anything publicly, that a lot of even back in the day there was the the people that were the anti Soldier of Fortune or anytime you mentioned they said like spit in the ground like Soldier of Fortunes, you know, <laughs> and it's like hey man, there's another side to these stories. And also, have you read the stories? Right. It's uh, like yeah, no. Yeah. Indeed, incredible. Oh yeah, because uh, I remember going to his office, and he's so. Generous to help people Mm -hmm. because at one point, Soldier of Fortune had expanded and he had this huge office in Boulder. And then things changed with some of the economic tides and it was time for him to to shrink the operation. Mm -hmm. And it took him a while. Well, finally, he had an accountant that came in and kicked ass and took numbers. And that accountant was the person that saved him. To help them really get things consolidated, get out of this big building. And then in the process, they found people who he knew, who he'd hired years ago, and they're drawing a salary or a stipend or something. They weren't doing anything mm-hmm. or anything much that would justify the amount of money he's paying them. And he would feel bad, you know, like, oh, come on, I've, I've known Harry for seven years now. But in the end, this was saved the day, So Soldier Force kept going for 40 plus years. Wow. Yeah,
1: he he's, he he. Absolutely, you know. And I was fortunate enough, but I I only just met you know Robert K. Brown, <laughs> so <laughs> but he, he very much comes off as you know the type of guy who wants to take care of his people, uh, no matter oh, yeah. what, what what team he's running. You know, um, a a a team of special forces or a, you know the team at Soldier of Fortune or you know the the teams that were you know helping him in these different areas. It's, uh, he, he seems like the type to take care of his guys.
2: Oh, yeah. And there was a couple of times, because I, I wasn't able to, to, to get to the, some of the conventions for a few years. And finally, he says, look, fuck it. I want you to come out. I'll pay for your ticket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we went out had a fun time. And, uh, then the, and then taking care of the people would be like, I said, before I started writing, I said, you know, I've got to use a nom de guerre. I just can't because if the people in my paper know I'm writing for you and this magazine, my days there are numbered. And, you know, I got this family I got to feed. Yeah. He goes, no problem. Just do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just
1: and like And so, that. yeah,
2: and they had inquiries. Said, who the hell is Isaac's thoughts, you know, writing about that? And he goes, he's one of our writers. You don't know him. That's your problem. <laughs> 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 and they never found out. He was wow. tight-lipped about it to the end. So
1: when I when I showed up today yeah. uh you you showed me this copy of Soldier of Fortune right which is from 1987 yeah uh and it's got one of your first published was this one of your first published articles with him yes
2: yeah with him we may he said there may have been one other one mm-hmm. and um <laughs> again you know we moved to Tennessee yeah and in my garage we still have 30 boxes that my wife and I haven't gone through and so there, are my final stack of Soldier of Fortune magazines, because a friend of mine sent me every article I've done. Wow! He copied them out. Well, Joe Parner. Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I just opened it up for the listeners here. Indeed, this article is titled "Never on a Sunday," NVA NVA hits Spike Team Idaho in Laos uh, by Isaac Statz. Indeed, <laughs>
2: amazing. And and for me, like some of the story like that one. And we did one on John Walton with uh, St. Louisiana and Tom Cunningham, who's been on our uh, Sodcast. And um, those stories from Soldier of Fortune, I got those that I could build them out for the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, for each of the book that some of those things began, and it forced me to go back to talk to the guys, and get some notes and build things up. And of course, Lynn Black.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the, so, so. And correct me if I'm wrong. You know, Soldier of Fortune is, in a way, responsible for a lot of that early SOG history and oh, kind yeah. of lore that that has developed. You know, over the years, and um, you were contributing to some of that. Absolutely, and
2: it's so much fun. It was just two. just two thoughts off of that. In the early days, um, I never realized what the impact was, mm-hmm. and I was talking to his to. Robert K. Brown's accountant. And later I talked to his lawyer, and we were talking. They said, we never met you. And I finally met them, I forget how, maybe six, seven years ago. And they said, we knew who Isaac Stoss was, but we didn't know who he was. Yeah. We kept hearing about this knucklehead tilt and then at some point, I started doing some, like we did a couple of stories on the King Bee Pilots getting awarded at the SOA and um, uh, a few other things. But the, by that time, it's gone. I wasn't at the newspaper anymore. And uh, and I said, whoa, wait, you're Isaac's thoughts? <laughs> <God>. <laughs> and, then, and then like now, Robert K. Brown's the beginning, but the stuff that Jocko's done with those podcasts, Oh my goodness. I mean, when I flew out here on the airplane, somebody comes by. Oh, I saw you on Jocko. At the airport, somebody comes by. And then the third guy was he says, Up, I've seen you on Jocko. He said, But you know, I remember reading about these stories in Soldier of Fortune. It's like, oh my God. So awesome. I'm I'm obviously, you
1: know, a huge fan of, (laughs) you know, every everything we get to cover on this podcast and um Knowing that that this these are the roots of you know what we get to continue to put out in into the world today, uh, you know means a lot, and I'm, oh, yeah. I'm I'm happy we get to be a part of that.
2: It's fun, it yeah. really is. You know, it is. And to give people because I always knew the stories are good, ours are good, but then once they're out there, we tell them, then we talk to guys that are in CAG, mm-hmm. we talk to guys that are the power rescue, and Most of them to the man that always come up and say, You know, we've done some crazy stuff, but you guys are just fucking crazy. (laughs) Well, I said, Yeah, it's a prerequisite, (laughs) you know. (laughs) One thing I was wondering until, and I I didn't really hear us dig
1: into it uh, with Robert K. Brown, Mm -hmm. but when did your paths first cross? Like, how did you guys get get to know each other? Well,
2: I read the magazine. Right. Uh, That first edition, I was, and I think that was, I think it was in the in the early 80s or like around maybe even as late as 85. Anyways, wherever I was, I saw that thing and I had a heart attack because it's like, well, okay, th- at that point, we were at the 20 year mark from the time the war ended. So from 75 to 85 was, no, that's not, that's only 15 years. I'm going like, hey, I still can't talk about this. And, and there so, it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, oh my God. And then, um, I was out to visit my brother. We went. I said, "I got to go find this guy." So we drove by the headquarters. We went out. We went. Had to run recon a couple of times before we were finally there, and he was there. Because mm-hmm. like one time he's in Rhodesia, another time he's, you know, bumfuck Egypt or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you guys just rolled up on him and introduced yeah. yourselves.
2: Yeah, it did. And then it turns out one of the people who was working for him was Tom Cunningham, who's from. Uh, our podcast, I think that was number, uh, I don't want to misstate it, but like around 10 or 11, Tom Cunningham. Yeah, John Plaster was 10, so Tom was 11, I think. And he was you know, he was in SOG for a week, came in country, processed in, gets put on a recon team, and uh, lost his leg because he got overrun the third time. Then he, they, he called in the, uh, his team leader. Called in the uh, gun run on his team to break the attack. Oh yeah, <sighs> unbelievable! Just well, just another dance song.
1: Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that's why we're here, buddy. Yeah, well, that, that's that's incredible. I'm glad you guys made that trip and you know uh got to find out who Robert K. Brown was. Yeah, uh, and started that, that yeah. awesome relationship. And
2: it was it was fun and um always honorable. You know, sometimes he get pissed, or sometimes he wanted things quicker. And sometimes he wanted me to do something where i couldn't do it but we worked worked through it all and um um just being down there today i mean there's always these stories that pop up that are new and different yeah absolutely <laughs> oh yeah so it, it was been fun and it's like another another chapter that's right and uh because of this we started off with what he's did with the sog stories that's why we brought him in the sockcast. <laughs> yeah, Sogcast number thirty. That's it. It's behind us. Mm-hmm. We're closing out. But uh, any last thoughts? Uh, thank you,
1: as always. Till this is, you know, this is such an honor. Uh, I enjoy, you know, <laughs> like our listeners and viewers, uh, just being able to sit around and listen to you guys chop up the old, the old days. We so got more coming. Can't wait.
2: Well, we look forward. Thanks for being part of the team. Thank you, sir. All right, airborne. All the way. <laughs>